My very first sermon here at Good Shepherd was in early July 2006. I had been hired a few weeks earlier as an interim youth director, promised only six months of employment. As I've said before, apparently there was some sort of glitch in the HR department. Even though it was a short-term gig, or, or could be that way, the Reverend Dr. James R. Wilson invited me to preach, and to preach in the actual sanctuary. This was no small thing for a 25-year-old without a seminary degree, but with long hair <laughs> and an inability to edit sermons to anything less than 45 minutes. Just last week, a member of our church, I, I won't mention the name, um, said to me, finally, after 16 and a half years, finally you've learned how to preach, and now you're leaving us. <laughs> I won't mention the, mention the name, it was Nick Barber. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, that slipped. Now, we were working our way through uh, the Essential 100 Bible Passages. I still have the brochure, the Essential 100 Bible Passages. I still have it, along with everything else that I've never thrown away in my office, which is why it's so messy. And the passage that I got to share from was John chapter 1. Uh, the point of my sermon, if I ever landed the plane on one in those 45 minutes, was that in Jesus, God has moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson's The Message translates it. That in Jesus, God has tabernacled with us. That he has set up a tent in our campsite. And I mentioned on that Tuesday at the staff meeting that I would love to have a big old tent right here in the middle of the chancel. And then I forgot about mentioning that at all. But Shelby, our children's director, found the largest tent I'd ever seen and set it up right there. I think it slept like 73 people. And the choir was not impressed. And I'm grateful today that this final sermon I get to share here at Good Shepherd is in the season of Advent. I'm grateful that we're not in what's called ordinary time in the church calendar, because I'm not sure I would have ever been able to land on a text to share from, and I, wanna, I, I would have probably preached way too long. I would have kept us here way past dinner, and you would have loved to have 45-minute long-haired Curtis back. <laughs> I love that we're thinking together about the season of Advent, because indeed we live in between the tension of these two topics, uh, that Jesus has come, and yet in another sense we are awaiting his arrival. That Jesus has come, and yet we are celebrating that he is indeed with us, that he has tabernacled with us, that he has moved into the neighborhood. This morning we continue our series we're calling An Unexpected Arrival. We're engaging Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew tells us, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him which was a problem. Uh, the translation makes it sound as though Herod was slightly displeased, like I have been through the years. When newcomers have come to our church and they have assumed that Pastor Paul White 
or Brian Wenger was the lead pastor. Just because they were older and taller and smarter and more refined gentlemen. But no, Herod was not just significantly, uh, he wasn't just merely annoyed, he was disturbed. He was really disturbed, and that was a serious problem. It doesn't exactly make for a heartwarming Christmas sermon, but Herod was a jealous and fearful guy. Through his 40-year reign, we know that he took the lives of his sister's husband and then his wife's grandfather. Later, his own mother, his wife, then her mother, and two of his own sons. At the event of his own death, Herod instructed his officials to take the lives of countless others in Jerusalem so that there would be weeping throughout the land because he was sure no one would weep at his passing. Herod's nickname was a murderous old man. It was a play on words where the two words sounded the same. Emperor Augustus once said, it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. You see, it's not good for Herod to be disturbed. And no wonder all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. They had no idea what he might do. But for Herod, a rival king was not an option. He paid the Romans good money to be the king of the Jews. And so it's no mistake that Matthew mentions twice in as many verses that Herod considered himself the king, and yet the Magi were looking for the king. That's the definite article there. They don't say we're looking for a king along with you, Herod. They say we're looking for the king. The tension is intentional. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Apparently, he missed that day in Sunday school. But the righteous religious folks turned in their Bibles to Matthew chapter, excuse me, to Micah chapter 5. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's get a few things out of the way. Despite the nativity on your entry hall table, we do not know how many magi there were. There could have been three or 3,000. I bet it was well more than three, considering the response of all Jerusalem. I can't imagine a whole town being nervous about three measly magi. And Matthew tells us about something that happened long after Jesus' birth in these verses, maybe as many as two years later. Notice, uh, they're in a house, not a manger. And Jesus is a child, not a baby. And he is with Mary, which means 
Joseph's paternity leave was over. Now, there are some theories about the star. Halley's Comet appeared around 11 BC, probably too early to get the Magi's attention before Jesus' birth between 4 and 6 BC. Another possibility is Jupiter and Saturn, whose paths crossed in 7 BC. Jupiter was thought of as the royal uh, kingly planet, and Saturn was thought to represent the Jewish people. Still another possibility is the appearance of the star Sirius, which rose in the month of Messori between 5 and 2 BC. Messori means the birth of a prince, which may have prompted these ancient astrologers to conclude that there had indeed been a royal birth. Whatever and whenever it was, something got the attention of these mysterious magi. And in ancient times, it was thought that meaningful events on earth would somehow be reflected in the heavens. Somehow what happens here would be seen in the stars. It's obscured in the New International Version, uh, but three different times, Matthew tells us that these magi are from the east. And in scripture, remember, the east is not merely a geographical destination, it's also a spiritual designation. This is what John Steinbeck was riffing on in that novel. Remember the law of first mention in the earliest pages of the scriptures. When Adam and Eve do the one thing they're not supposed to do, they are sent east. And that's where the Magi are from, the east. Three different times, Matthew tells us he wants to make sure that we don't miss it. They're from the east where Adam and Eve were sent. They're from the east. They're from the east. They're most likely pagan priests from Persia, and their astrological interests, their overemphasis in staring at the stars was actually forbidden in the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah 47 puts it this way, let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. You can sense the kind of sarcasm, right? No, surely those astrologers, those stargazers are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. It almost sounds like a talking head song. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. Those astrologers staring up at the night sky, they can't save you. Isaiah says. And so these magi from the east, even these magi from the east are searching for the king. They're what scholars refer to as the criterion of embarrassment. We've talked about this before, that there are times throughout the scriptures, especially in the gospels, where there are things mentioned that would not be mentioned if the gospel writers were making up the story. The resurrection is the most powerful example of the criterion of embarrassment. In other words, there is no doubt that this actually happened because it would have been rather embarrassing for Magi, excuse me, for Matthew writing to Jews to report that the Magi were the ones who got it right. It's these outsiders, it's these magicians, it's these astrologers from the East. They are the ones who respond rightly to Jesus' unexpected arrival. It's these mysterious men, these Persian priests who allowed the star and then the scriptures to lead them to the Savior. Perhaps they knew Isaiah 47, that they were not those that could save, but they followed 
until they found the one who can. And so Matthew couples their geographical destination and spiritual designation three different times. He tells us that they came to worship Jesus. The Greek word is proskuneo. Let me hear you say proskuneo. Proskuneo, it means to bow down, to fall upon the knees, and to touch the ground with your forehead as an expression of profound reverence. Think about it. These priests from Persia had traveled for how long? To bow down, to proskuneo, to worship, to touch their foreheads to the ground at the feet of a toddler. They give their time and they give their treasures to the toddler Jesus. Now, there are two other responses in this text, aren't there? There's two other ways to respond to Jesus. One from Herod and one from the chief priests and the teachers of the law. We know that Herod is a murderous old man. It would better to be a pig than his son. And he sits on the throne of his own life. He will be king and there will be no rival. Now, let's get two things out of the way. First of all, none of us are like hostile and hate-filled Herod. Agreed? None of us are like Herod, right? Are we all in agreement there? Good, okay, that's the first thing I want to get out of the way. The second thing is, we're all a little bit like Herod, aren't we? (laughs) Now, I trust that we're not trying to take out our relatives this Christmas season. If so, I will see you in my office after the service. We need to talk. But, in a way, we all want to sit on the throne of our own life's little kingdom, don't we? In a way, we all want to be the king with no rival. We want to be the captain of our own fate, the master of our own soul, don't we? Anybody willing to admit that this morning? I see that hand, Catherine. Thank you. See, we're not like Herod. But we're all a little bit like Herod. We've all heard of being hard-hearted, and there's this little part of us that's Herod-hearted, right? We want to do what we want to do, or we don't want to do what we don't want to do. We all have a little Herod within our hearts. That's the, the irreligious option, right? And it's in all of us. But don't miss the other option that we see here in the text. And that one is just as dangerous. Just as dangerous of being just like Herod. That other option is to be like the chief priests and the teachers of the law who know exactly where that star hangs. Who know exactly where the, what the scriptures say. Oh, Bethlehem? Yeah, that's just um, six miles south. Hang a left when you see the stable. But what do they do? They stay in Jerusalem. Their intellect leads to inaction and indifference. They they rest and rely upon their religion. They are apathetic and unaffected. There's the irreligious option, which is to be like Herod. And then there's the religious option, which is just as dangerous. To know where the star hangs and what the scriptures say and to stay put. See, even in his birth, even as a toddler, Jesus invites us to something more than irreligion, and he invites us to something more than 
religion of having all the answers but still being apathetic. Jesus invites us to the gospel. Jesus invites us to the gospel, to the good news of God's coming to us, for us, for all of us who would admit that we have wandered east because we wanted to sit on our own throne, because we wanted to call our own shots. But here's the good news of the gospel. Even us outsiders are welcomed in when Jesus moves into the neighborhood. Even Persian priests from the east can take a pilgrimage to worship Jesus, to proskuneo, to bow down at his feet, to let their foreheads touch the ground. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once put it this way. He said, faith is not the clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Faith is not the clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Audacious longing, burning songs, daring thoughts, an impulse overwhelming the heart and usurping the mind. These are all a drive toward serving him who rings our hearts like a bell. These are all a drive toward serving him who rings our hearts like a bell. So whatever and whenever, whatever it was and whenever it was, something got the attention of these mysterious magi. And whatever, and whenever, and whoever it was, something got your attention and pointed to you the good news of this gospel. They didn't talk to you about your religion or religion. They talked to you about Jesus. Someone, sometimes, somewhere, at some point. It may not have been a star. It may have been when you came to the end of your rope. Or when a relationship was falling apart. Or you had this deep sense in your soul that there must be something more to life. Whatever and whenever and whoever it was, may it point you deep into the scriptures that will point you toward a pilgrimage of the heart. That will point you toward that audacious longing, those burning songs, those daring thoughts, an impulse overwhelming your heart and usurping your mind whatever and whenever and whoever it was, may it point you to a pilgrimage of the heart. Scholars call it the criterion of embarrassment that the Magi came from the East because it was so unlikely that these Magi would be the ones that would get the gospel when everyone else missed it. When Herod, with his irreligion, and and the religious people with their religion weren't willing to make the trek. But the Magi get it. They're the ones who get the gospel. They call it the criterion of embarrassment, but God is not embarrassed to welcome any of us into his family. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we would be so bold to follow the example of these mysterious men, to proskuneo, to bow down at the feet of Jesus. It's been long pointed out that these magi bring three gifts. However many of them there were, there's gold and there's frankincense and there's myrrh, which correspond to Jesus as the king. That's the gold, right? And Jesus as the priest, that's the the incense. 
and then the myrrh, which points forward to Jesus as a prophet who would give his life as a ransom for many. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 4 through 6, there's another prophecy like the one Sue read for us a few moments ago, but I want you to hear Isaiah 60, 4 through 6, another prophecy that point forward to Jesus. It says this, Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and from all Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. See, it sounds so much like Matthew 2, doesn't it? It sounds so much like these mysterious magi who've come from all that distance, who've come from the east, who bring all those treasures and give all of their time. It sounds so much like Matthew 2, except for one thing. In Isaiah chapter 60, we don't hear anything about myrrh. Remember, myrrh points forward to Jesus' death. And so perhaps Isaiah 60 points forward to these magi, to these first in Jesus' earthly life in which he died for you and me, for us outsiders from the east. Perhaps Isaiah 60 points even further. It doesn't tell us about any myrrh. Perhaps it points forward to Jesus' triumphant return in which we will need no myrrh. Because the death that he died, he died once for all, for those who would be welcomed into his family. Isaiah 60 only tells us about the incense for the priest who made a way for us and a gold for the king who sits on the throne. And so, Father, we live in between the times. We live in between the times of Jesus' coming and Jesus' return. And we have seen He was the king who sat on the throne, upsetting the values of all the other kings who would want to sit on the throne of their own life. And he was the priest who made a way, sacrificing even himself. He was the prophet pointed forward to with myrrh. But God, that when he returns, we will need only the gold, for he shall sit on the throne and only the incense, because he is the priest who has made a way for us. Father, would you give us the courage to continue traveling in from the east, from however far away we've walked, that our spiritual designation would point back to you, that you would welcome us into your family. Would you give us the courage in a culture that tells us we are the captain of our own fate and the master of our own soul to instead bow down at the feet of our Savior, to bend our knees, put our foreheads on the ground, to bow down before Jesus all the days of our life? Give 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.